But today we continue our study from Matthew chapter 13. There are seven parables in this sermon preached by Jesus. We have come to the sixth parable, the parable of the pearl. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl are similar. The most common interpretation for those parables is that Jesus is the hidden treasure and he is the pearl of great value. If one were to interpret it that way, it means then that man is seeking the pearl and also the hidden treasure. I have already shared with you why I do not believe that interpretation to be consistent with the interpretation that Jesus gave to us in the first two parables. Therefore, I think there should be a reversal. In other words, it is Jesus who is seeking the hidden treasure, and it is Jesus who is seeking the pearl of great value. Well, if that is so, then we would ask the question, what is the hidden treasure? And I said last week that the treasure is Israel. Well, then what is the pearl of great price? The pearl is the church. I'm a member of the Board of Trustees at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Last week we had our trustee meeting. On Monday night we had a meeting and the emphasis was on campus ministry. A number of campus ministers were there and it was fascinating to listen to them. These men who are involved in ministering to the campuses in the southeast. And as I listened to them, one of them told about being in a meeting and the question was asked of another well-known minister, what do you believe to be the most important message that needs to be shared with college students today? I was surprised by the answer. The answer given immediately was ecclesiology, the study of the church. Today we're going to look at the church, so take your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. As we look at our scripture today, we begin with the uniqueness of the church. And the church, like the pearl, is unique in its essence. I know that there are those people who believe that the church has replaced Israel. And they believe that the promises concerning Israel are now promises to the church. That the prophecies about Israel are prophecies about the church. And when the Bible speaks of a glorious kingdom on earth, they say that that is not referring to the nation of Israel, but instead it is referring to the church age, the age in which you and I now live. Israel and the church are synonymous, they say. When the Bible speaks about the desert blossoming, they say that speaks of the blossoming of the church. In Isaiah 35, the prophet wrote, The wilderness and the desert will be glad, 
and the Arabah or the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And they say, that is prophesying concerning the growth of the church, the splendor of the church, the magnificence of the church. The prophecies about the temple, they say, are not really about the temple. Instead, they are about the church. There is a verse of Scripture that causes me to ponder and consider it a challenge to that interpretation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 32, Paul wrote, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. There are three entities that are mentioned there. He mentions the Jews, Israel, they are an entity. He mentions the Greeks, the non-Jew, the Gentile, they are an entity. And then he mentions the church. Those Jews and Greeks who have been born again, those Jews and Gentiles who have come to Jesus Christ and comprise the church. So if there are three different distinctions in that verse of Scripture, then it suggests to me that the church has not replaced Israel. The church is unique, and Israel is unique. The analogy of the pearl is an interesting analogy. The Hebrew people did not value the pearl. In fact, it is only mentioned once in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 28, verse number 18, is the only mention in the Old Testament of a pearl because they did not value it. Now, you know that Jesus' disciples came from the region of Galilee. It was to Galilee that Gentiles came in search of pearls because they valued the pearl. And so the, the, the disciples then understood the value that Jesus was speaking of. They understood the analogy. Even though the pearl was not valued by the Hebrews, they lived in a region where Gentiles came in search of pearls because they did value the pearl. And so when Jesus speaks of a pearl of great value, they understood that as far as Jesus was concerned and the Gentiles were concerned, that the pearl had value. The formation of the pearl is also interesting. Every person here knows how a pearl is formed. It is a, a product of life. The oyster has a grain of sand to get inside, and it irritates the oyster. So the oyster then begins to secrete a solution that will cover the grain of sand so that it no longer irritates. And after layer and layer and layer, the pearl then is formed. Other jewels can be cut and improved by man. But if the pearl is cut, its value is lost. You see, the pearl is a product of life. And the church also is a product of life. Now, the irritant that produces the pearl is a grain of sand. The irritant of mankind is sin. The oyster secretes a solution that covers the grain of sand. 
sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. In order for the pearl to be produced, the oyster suffers. In order for the church to be born, Jesus sacrifices. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Although he, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. All right, the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself. As he is giving life to the church, he emptied himself. Of what did he empty himself? Well, it wasn't his deity. Because Jesus remained divine even in his human form. He remained omnipotent. The Bible says in Matthew 28:18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now that means then he is still omnipotent. He still had power over disease, even in his human form. The New Testament tells a story about a woman who had an issue of blood. And she came to Jesus believing that if I can just get close and touch the hem of his garment, then I will be made well. There was a crowd of people surrounding Jesus, and so this little lady made her way through the crowd and reached out and touched the hem of his garment. And the Bible says in Mark 5:29, And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So Jesus still had power over disease. The Bible tells a story about Bartimaeus who sat outside Jericho begging. He was, a, he was a blind beggar. And one day Jesus came by. Bartimaeus heard that it was Jesus and he had heard about Jesus. So he began to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the Bible says that Jesus stopped and called him over and asked the question, what do you want? And he said, Lord that I might see. And Jesus healed him. What I want you to understand is that Jesus emptied himself, but it was not of his deity, because he still was omnipotent. He had power over disease. He had power over demons. In Matthew 8:16, the Bible says, And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Jesus still had power over the demonic powers. He was omnipotent. He still had power over nature. The Scripture tells about the disciples being in the Sea of Galilee on a boat with Jesus, and a storm came up. And the waves became boisterous, and the disciples became fearful. And they, scared, they were scared they were going to perish, but Jesus was asleep. And so they went to where Jesus was, they awakened him, and said, Master, do you not care that we are perishing? And the Bible says in Mark 4:39, and being aroused, 
He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. He did not empty himself of his omnipotence. He still had power over nature. He even had power over death. Lazarus, his friend, was sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus. Jesus delayed in getting there. When Jesus came, Lazarus had died. Jesus went to the grave, and he prayed. And the Bible says, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus came forth back alive. Folks, he did not give up his deity. He did not empty himself of his omnipotence. He remained omnipresent. After Philip came to know the Lord, the first thing he did was to take Jesus to see Nathaniel, his friend. And when Jesus saw him, he said, uh, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And in John 1:48, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He is omnipresent. Now that is one of the characteristics of the Lord that encourages me. That no matter where I am, He's there. And that I can be here this morning and worship with you and know that the Lord is here. And at the same time, know that the Lord is with my son, Eric, over at Village Church. He is with your families, my family. He is omnipresent. We never leave the presence of the Lord. He did not empty himself of his omniscience. He knew that Judas would betray him, Matthew 26, 21. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. He knows everything. The Bible says that he knows the heart of man in John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's another one of those characteristics that I guess uh, there is a... I'm happy about not so happy about, not, you know, because the Lord knows me. You don't know me. You know what you see. I don't know you. You look nice. You look spiritual. I mean, you sit out there and I sit up here and I say, yeah, you look spiritual this morning. I don't know if you are or not. You look like you love the Lord. I don't know if you do or not. I don't know your heart. But the Lord does. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in my heart. The good thing about that is since he knows, I, I can be honest with the Lord. That, that, I've said this before. I prefer to pray alone because I have noticed with me, I know this is not true with you, but I have noticed with me that when I pray with other people that I'm conscious of you listening. And so I might say something, you know, throw in a thou and a thee every once in a while when you'll think that I'm spiritual. But when it's just the Lord and me, 
I tell him really and truly what I am and what's on my heart because he already knows anyway. He is omniscient. He remained immutable. He never changed. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And aren't you glad of that? That Jesus never changes. He is always the same. He remained eternal. John 8:58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, which is the name of God. You remember when Moses met the Lord and, and, and God said to, to Moses, I want you to go and, and uh, deliver my people? And Moses asked the question, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am hath sent you. Not I was, not I might be, but I am. I'm eternal. Last Sunday, we were leaving church to go home. And Pruitt, my grandson, wanted to ride with me. And I don't know where this came from, but he began to ask me a question. He said, how, how can it be that when an airplane is flying and there is a fly in that airplane that it can fly around? Why don't you smash against the back? Or when I jump up, why don't I end up in the seat behind me? And so we talked about gravity. And we talked about the, the pull of gravity, the center of gravity, and, and all that stuff. So we talked about that. And I said, you know, Pruitt, what used to really bother me when I was a little boy was the question, and sometimes I would lie awake at night and think, now what was before God? And Pruitt said, boy, that just drives me crazy. <laughs> and I said, well, it does me too. He said, well, what's the answer? And I said, nothing existed before God. That's like asking, you know, what was before A? Nothing's before A. What's before God? Nothing was before... Why? Because He's eternal. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. God is eternal. But the Bible says He emptied Himself. Look at verse number 46 again. And upon finding one pearl of great value, He went and sold all that He had and bought it. He sold everything. Well, then what did He give up for the church? The Bible says that he emptied himself. Well, he did not empty himself of his deity. He remained omnipotent. He remained omnipresent. He, re he remained omniscient. Well, then what did he give up? What did he empty himself of for the church? He gave up his heavenly glory. John chapter 17, verse number 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He gave up his heavenly glory. What did Jesus give up? Well, he left the adoring presence of the angels to come and be spat upon by mankind. He left the shining glory of heaven to travel the dusty road to Calvary. What did he give up for the church? He gave up his heavenly glory. He gave up his independent authority. In John chapter 5, verse number 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. 
Jesus, in his deity as a human, gave up his independent authority and became submissive to the Father. In great struggle in Gethsemane. Before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden. And there he struggles in prayer, struggles in prayer. Oh, Father, if there is some way to save man other than my death, then let, let this cup pass from me. And he prayed it again. Father, if there is some other way for the redemption of man, then let this cup pass from me. And he prayed it again. But then he said, but not my will, but thine be done. As he submitted himself to the Father. What did he give up for the church? He gave up his heavenly glory. He gave up his independent authority. He gave up his eternal riches. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich? Have you ever thought about Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, deity incarnate? That he borrowed almost everything he needed? When it was time for him to be born, he wasn't born in his home. He wasn't born in his room. He was born in a stable. That belonged to someone else. When he wanted to cross the Sea of Galilee to go to the other side, he didn't have a boat. He borrowed someone else's boat to get to the other side. When he wanted to have the Passover with his disciples, he didn't have a room. He borrowed the room of a friend. And even when he died, he didn't have a tomb. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. What did he give up? He gave up his riches that you and I might become rich through his poverty. That's what he gave up for the church. He gave up his life. He went to the cross. And while he was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? As all of your sin and all of my sin was placed on him and he paid for it, there on the cross he gave his life. What did Jesus give up for the church? He gave his life. I wonder sometimes, how can we be so cavalier about the church? When Jesus gave so much for it. When it means so much to Jesus. You see the value of the church in verse number 46. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The church is a pearl of great value. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting at all that the church is perfect. Not this one or any other one. It isn't. But it has great value to Jesus. 
And it has value because of its purpose. You see, the church represents Jesus. When Paul was persecuting the church, you recall that Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, Paul, why do you persecute me? Now, Paul could have said, Lord, I'm not persecuting you. But Jesus identifies so closely with the church. He says, if you persecute the church, you persecute me. Why are you persecuting me? In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul wrote, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. What is the value of the church? We represent Jesus. What is the value of the church? We are the witnesses of Christ. He has called us to be His witnesses. That is an assignment that He has given to His church. The church is valuable because of its eternal aspect. There were two wealthy Christians who were on a tour around the world with other people. One of them was a lawyer, one of them a merchant. They had come to Korea, and when they came to Korea, they were being shown around by a missionary in the area. And they looked out in a field and they saw a boy that was pulling a plow and an old man who was holding the handles behind pushing the plow. And one of the men, the Christians, said they must be very poor. And the missionary said, yes, they, they are very poor. He said their church was having a, a raising money to build a new building. And... Uh, So they sold their ox to be able to give to the construction of the new building. The two men stood there for a while looking, probably humbled by it, as I certainly would be. And one of them said, well, that was quite a sacrifice. And the missionary said, well, they don't see it that way. They were grateful that they had an ox to sell. Why? Because they understand, they understood the value of the church that, folks, listen, what you and I do in the church has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. When we support missions, that has eternal consequences. When we pray for people, it has eternal consequences. The church has value because our message is an eternal message, so it is a pearl of great value. Jesus paid a price for the church and declared it to be a pearl of great value. Let me ask you as we prepare to go into the invitation, how do you see the church? Folks, there are some of you who need to become a part of the church. Church is not going to save you, but it's valuable to Jesus. Some of you should join it. You've talked about it for so long and never done it. Some of you need to get involved with the gifts that God has placed within you and put those gifts to use in the Lord's kingdom to be a blessing to others. Some of you need to learn to tithe. You've never learned that. What is the church to you?
to Jesus, it is a pearl of great value. And he gave his life for it. Gracious Father, thank you so much that you love your bride, even to the point that you gave your life. Father, I pray today that you will speak to some of your people who have never really valued the church as you do. And Lord, that today some will come to be a part of this family. We pray for some who have never come to know Jesus as Savior, that today they might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir is going to sing. This is an invitation for you to come to Christ, to join the church. I'll meet you as you come. You come as they sing.